1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready?
3: Yeah, I'm all set.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've got a really interesting one for you guys today. We have Andrew Lowney with us, who has run his own literary agency since 1988. He is a trustee of the Campaign for Freedom of Information and president of the Biographers Club. He's written for The Times, Telegraph, Wall Street Journal, Spectator and The Guardian. He wrote a brilliant biography of Guy Burgess, but his latest book, The Mountbattens*, is the Daily Mail's biography of the year. Welcome, Andrew.
3: Hello. Nice to be here.
2: Do you know what? I think we should just jump straight in uh, with these questions. So could you start by telling us which two Mountbattens your book title refers to? Because... Who is Uncle Dickie? Because our knowledge of him is entirely based on World War I and the name change and what happened to his father. Um, we believe he was at Dartmouth and at one point there was a rumour that his dad had been arrested. So tell us how he becomes a Mountbatten and about World War One.
3: Yes, the, the two characters are, are Dickie Mountbatten, Prince Philip's uncle, born in 1900, and his wife Edwina, born in 1901. Uh, Dickie was the great-grandson of Queen Victoria uh, and uh, his father prince louis of of battenberg was in fact um the first lord of the admiralty first sorry first sea lord and he was forced to resign in the first world war because of anti german feeling uh the family in fact later changed their name from battenberg to mountbatten uh, uh and so that's why the stories have risen about him being arrested he wasn't arrested but he did resign and in fact this was one of the things that really drove his son to his ambition to become first sea lord himself, which he did almost exactly 40 years later. And when the two got married in 1922, they were regarded as one of the most glamorous couples in Britain. Something like 8,000 people came to their wedding, which was uh, at St Margaret's in the shadow of Westminster Abbey. The Prince of Wales, the future King Edward VIII, was the best man. The King George V and Queen Mary were among the guests. Uh, and it made, drew headlines around the world. There were indeed special supplements listing the wedding presents and various things. Uh, and you can actually see on YouTube uh, a Pathy newsreel of the wedding. So they were uh, both extremely good-looking. She, at the time, was the richest heiress in the world. Uh, and there were some concerns that Dickie, Dickie was a bit of a gold digger, um, uh, which, in the end, proved to be unfounded. But uh, they were a remarkable couple. And, of course, quite soon after the marriage, the, certainly she began to have affairs. According to her daughter, she had 18 lovers in the course of the marriage. I, I've only found 16 so far. Um, but uh, oh, yeah. she was certainly a woman ahead of her time, shall we say.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about how, how World War I comes into this?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, the First World War, uh, Dicky is uh, at Dartmouth, as you say. He um, just misses fighting at Jutland, where his older brother George is actually a a young midshipman. Uh, And the First World War, I suppose, is important because uh, the the, the royal family, which is German, has to change its name to the House of Windsor. uh, And um, as I say, the Mountbatten's, uh, become Mountbatten's from Battenberg. So it's quite a traumatic point. And I think one of the interesting things I found in the course of research in the book is that, uh, Dicky's sort of background, his antecedents were very important to him. He felt, um, I think very vulnerable because he wasn't actually a prince of Hesse. His grandfather had had a morganatic mar- marriage. Um, But he was certainly brought up amongst the crown heads of Europe. His uncle was the Tsar, Nicholas II. He himself had childhoods with the Russian royal family and was very fond of particularly Princess Marie. Uh, And um, so he was a much more cosmopolitan figure than many of the sort of, certainly all the naval officers of his generation. But he was clearly going to the top. Uh, After the First War, he went to Cambridge for a couple of terms. There he became very friendly with, King, the future King George VI and Prince Henry and through them with, uh, Prin- Prince Edward. Uh, and one of the first things he did as a young naval midshipman was to act as ADC to, uh, the future King with the eighth on his tours around the world. And that relationship that, that Dickie had really with the royal family, which went right back to Queen Victoria, he was her last godchild, continued right through to, to Prince Charles. He was not only a, a very close friend, he called him his greatest friend, of uh, King of the Eighth, but very close to King George VI and then to the Queen, uh, and Prince Charles always called him his honorary grandfather.
2: So coming back to the relationship between Dick and Edwina, tell us how they got together, because was it a love match?
3: Well, yes, it was a love match. They they met at Cowes in 1921. Uh, she... Uh, and very quickly got married. They got engaged, in fact, in India when he was on one of his tours. Uh, and in the spring of 1922 and married in July 1922. And it's one of those extraordinary marriages which, though it was beset with infidelities on both sides, uh, was a very loving one, supportive one. Uh, and the, the various lovers became, in some ways, honorary parents to the two girls, uh, Pamela and Patricia. So that's what I call why I called it the lives and loves because though they had very distinguished public lives, they also had these uh, very different private lives to most people. Uh, and um, Dicky was a very unjealous person. He only was concerned that his reputation wasn't affected with the royal family and, and his career wasn't affected. So as long as Edwina was discreet, as she always wasn't, then he was he was happy. Uh, and indeed, she really wasn't a good mother. So after uh, Patricia was born in 1924 and Pamela in 1929, she pretty much abandoned them to governesses and went travelling the world with friends, including her bisexual sister-in-law Nada Milford Haven. Uh, and they did the most extraordinary things: camping in the Middle East across the desert, travelling by horseback across South America. They drove. She was the first woman to drive down the Burma-China Road. She went with one of her lovers, Bunny Phillips, across the South Seas in a small junk. She was incredibly adventurous and, and um, uh, um, I suppose, very unusual woman. And, and as I said, ahead of her time, she had the money, she had the time uh, to do these things. Uh, but she certainly um, didn't behave like a conventional wife of a naval officer.
2: I have to say, I think I would love to go travelling with her. She sounds like a right barrel of laughs.
3: Yeah, she was fun, and, and I think one of the interesting things I discovered is that it's this, this really a book of two halves. Uh, she's in many ways looking for a purpose in life. She has a lot of money, has a lot of time, and nothing really to do with it, um, apart from a brief job during the general strike in nineteen twenty-six. She's just a lady of leisure, uh, and she never really. She's highly intelligent, not really properly educated, very much a sort of product of her time, uh, and. Uh, it's only really the war that gives her some sort of uh, job and purpose and validation, particularly validation in the eyes of her husband. Uh, and at that point, the whole thing changes. Though she continues to have lovers and lead a, uh, a pretty exciting private life, she has is driven by a very strong sense of duty, as he was. Uh, and she becomes, in some ways, the hero- heroine of the book. Uh, there's, there's no one I found who had a harsh word to say against her after the um, Second World War she becomes this humanitarian figure who is um, devoted to her um, charity work with St John Ambulance and Save the Children
2: So the Second World War uh, he's of course Mountbatten of Burma can you
3: tell us why? Yes What ha- the, the war makes uh, Dickie, he, he at the beginning of the war he's in charge of a naval, of a destroyer flotilla. Uh, uh, but he's a terrible uh, captain. He's uh, torpedoed, he's sunk uh, several times, uh, and uh, often by disobeying orders. But Churchill realises that he, he he shouldn't leave him at sea, it's too dangerous, but that he has innate qualities of leadership. He's His connections to the royal family are very good. He gets on with the Americans. Uh, and he sort of thinks outside the box. And so he makes him... Uh, head of the um, uh, Combined Operations, which are basically a team of of, sort of commandos who mount operations against occupied Europe, uh, of which the most famous raid is the Depp Raid of 1942, a rather controversial one. Uh, but uh, uh, Dickey proves himself a great success uh, at Combined Operations, and as a result of that, in 1943, he's made the Supreme Allied Commander Southeast Asia, which is, in a sense, the equivalent of Eisenhower here in Europe. The job has to go to, to a British person because the Americans have Europe. Uh, and Dickey uh, gets the job after several other people turn it down. Uh, and again, he proves himself a very able political operator, very good at getting on with people. And particularly at the end of the war, when a lot of the nationalist parties move into the, the gap that's left by the retreating empires in Southeast Asia, Uh, there's a vacuum there. And many people want to go back to the status quo. They want to restore the previous governors, for example, the governor of Burma. But Dickey realizes that's no longer possible. Uh, He's always been very friendly with with Attlee. And as a result of this friendship with Attlee and these very progressive views, when there's a need for a new uh, 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 Viceroy of India in 1947, Dickey is appointed. And he goes out in March 1947 with Edwina at that point, they've been on the point of divorce, but again, the public life brings them together. Uh, and he sees the, the problems in India, that the British authority is waning, that they can no longer really hold it together. The Indian Civil Service hasn't been had any new uh, appointments for many years. The army wants to come home. The Indians are getting impatient. There's been quite a lot of communal violence. Uh, and he makes the very controversial decision that independence will be brought forward from June 1948 to August 1947, so only a few months hence. Uh, he also realises that uh, the hopes of United Ireland, which has always been the intention, uh, are going to be impossible. Jinnah, the leader of the Muslims, uh, is determined that they will have their own homeland, and therefore India is split. And this, uh, of course, causes problems, because uh, there already are huge communal um, tensions Uh, there are uh, worries that when the the country is divided that Muslims will not be, their interests will not be protected in the Hindu side and vice versa. And that, of course, proves to be the case. And I think one of the tragedies, something like a million people died in August 1947, is that there wasn't better preparation. The British were determined to go out on a high. They wanted basically to uh, leave uh and leave the Indians to sort out their problems. And that's what they did. So the boundaries were only announced the day after the independence celebrations. Uh, and as a result there was mass panic. Um, trains uh, were going between both sides, the Indian and, and and Muslim part, the Hindu and Muslim part, and of course they were easily targeted by by the various groups. And often you'd see a train arrive in a station with everyone on board butchered. So the the the, the verdict of his time in India is, is sort of mixed. There's some people say that he had no choice and that he at least got us out. Others say that if he had been less impatient, uh, there would have been less bloodshed uh, and there wouldn't be the intractable problems that remain of places um, uh, like uh, Kashmir.
2: Can you tell us about uh, what Edwina went through during the war?
3: Yes, Edwina joined the St John Ambulance um, and rose to become the, the head of it during the war uh, she was highly attractive, very intelligent, very good speaker, and she was often used on fundraising, right, raising initiatives. She and Dickie went off to the States, for example, in 1941 before war broke out, before war was declared by America. Uh, she did enormous amount of traveling, and Dickie brought her out at the end of the war to work, uh, in Southeast Asia. She was often one of the first into the Japanese prisoner of war camps, even before the soldiers themselves liberated the camps. She was incredibly brave, uh, and did an extremely good job there. As she did in India, she realized that there needed to be more nurses, uh, that the position of woman needed to be better, uh, more respected. Um, so she was a sort of early feminist in many respects. Uh, and, uh, uh, she carried on this humanitarian work after the war, almost as if she had to make up for her misspent youth. Uh, and this, I think, drove her to an early death. It was on one of these tours in the spring of 1960 that she suddenly complained of feeling ill one evening. Uh, the next morning, her secretary went in, she was in Borneo, went in to wake her up and found that she died in the course of the night. And around her were spread the love letters of Nehru. Nehru was the Hindu leader with whom she'd fallen in love while they were in India. Uh, and that relationship really from 1947 continued until her death in 1960. Uh, it was a very intense relationship. I quote some of their love letters. Uh, and when she died, uh, Dick, she wanted to be buried at sea. Dicky allowed Nehru to send a, a frigate to, to also throw a wreath into the water um, with his wreath. Uh, Dickey was extremely, as I say, generous to, to her lovers. He treated them as equals. They were bound together by their devotion to her. Um, and he never made a fuss um, she had a whole series of quite famous lovers. After the war, they included Sir Malcolm Sargent, the, the, the composer and conductor. Uh, and during the war, a man called, who um, was the head of CBS, uh, called um, Bill Paley. Uh, so uh, something like 8,000 people, I've seen the letters, uh, wrote to um, Dicky uh, on her death. She was a very, very popular figure.
2: She actually sounds she sounds remarkable I mean there must have been something about her not just her beauty but something within her that attracted these men in such a passionate way
3: Yeah she was a very charismatic woman she was very kind uh, very driven um very very beautiful um as uh, say very um a bit like Dickie, thought outside the box. I mean, I, I really found no one who, as had, had, had um, a harsh word to say about her. And you know, she was a remarkable woman. And as you say, these men fell in love with her, um, uh, and and in a way that Dicky didn't didn't mind. He had his own lovers. He had a long term lover called Yolande uh who was a French woman uh, married to a much older, richer. Uh, newspaper proprietor in fact she's supposedly the inspiration for Colette's Shiji and then during the war he had this very intense affair with a woman called Janie Lindsay who had been engaged to both John F. Kennedy and, and David Niven so she was a pretty alpha woman herself uh, and then later after the war um, there were other uh, mistresses particularly after Edwina died many of whom remain alive today so I have to be careful what I, I say but he was a man. I mean, they were both uh, were people who really enjoyed life and had a zest for it. And it's incredible to see how hard they worked. Um, often staying late into the night, uh, preparing speeches and doing their paperwork, uh, uh, writing thank you letters. Um, they, 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 the, the people that interest me because though they had their flaws, they were brilliant in their, their own way.
2: So Dicky would have nothing to do with the Japanese, would he? Is it right that no Japanese dignitaries were invited to his funeral?
3: Yes, I think he was a, a man who uh, was very good at mixing with, with all ranks and with all races. But because of what he'd seen, uh, the atrocities during the war, based out in the Far East, uh, he refused to have anything to do with the Japanese. Uh, he he did turn up when Hirohito came on a state visit, but only because the Queen gave him a three-line whip. But absolutely, he was um, uh, it was one of the sort of three-line whips he had that he he just would have nothing to do with the Japanese.
2: Does he have the ego to match his career trajectory? I mean, what was he like as a person?
3: Well, he, they were both very complex and contradictory people. Um, uh she not so much later on but they could be very imperious very difficult very selfish uh he um uh, could be incredibly rude to people and um ignore people a lot of members of staff didn't like him uh senior army officers who worked with him later as first sea lord and his chief of defence staff uh really didn't have a good word to say about him he was very duplicitous um and he was a yeah he could be extremely difficult. he was very he drove himself and he expected others to do the same, but he also had enormous loyalty from people uh and he was extremely good he was almost like a child he was extremely good with young people uh and uh particularly good as a as a grandfather but um yeah that you know this is again one of the challenges you you you- pres- you present this as sort a of mosaic of impressions from different people one's talked to. And they all have had a different experience of him. He was incredibly vain, but like a lot of vain people, very insecure. And I think that was partly because he felt he was an outsider. He was a German. He had not gone through the conventional public school education. Though of course, he'd been at Dartmouth, uh, and at a prep school. Um, he, he never, th- he didn't believe in, in sort of being the, the, the gentleman amateur. He was the professional. You know, he, he played to win. So, for example, when he played pet polo, he trained very hard, he studied the game, he made sure that people uh, practised, uh, and uh, he was just determined to win at all costs. Uh, and that was true of his career as well. And that's not really something that the British like. They like the sense of the, the slightly hopeless amateur. So he was not always a very popular figure uh, with with people. Uh, uh, but that's, you know, again, part of the interest of writing about him.
2: Was he gay, and why did the FBI maintain a file on him?
3: Well, one of the discoveries I found uh, researching the book um, was that the FBI kept a file on him from 1944. Now, there would always been rumours that he was bisexual, uh, uh, but no one had ever really gotten the evidence. But I began to look at this, and the FBI file, one of the files said that this man is a, is a pervert with a particular interest in young boys, Uh, and there seemed to be quite a lot of FBI files on him that went right through to the 1950s, and there were very many uh, reputable witnesses. You can't always believe everything you read in FBI files because they just record what people have said. But the wife of the Secretary of State for India, a senior intelligence officer, a society hostess, all said the same thing. Uh, And then I began to uh, talk to people who'd worked with him and uh, indeed, one of the breakthroughs was a friend of mine from Cambridge whose father had been his ADC, uh, who s- said that his father had been shocked to see the rent boys sent up to his quarters when he was based at NATO. Uh, and so there's a whole chapter in the book about uh, with accounts from these various people, including an interview with the man he uh, had as a lover for the last seven or eight years of his life. He was in his 70s and this man was in his 20s. Uh, and uh, stories began to emerge. I think the more shocking part of it was that um, there seems to be some truth in the fact that he also had this interest in very young boys. Uh, There are two men I interviewed who were in effect sex trafficked to him in Ireland uh, and abused by him. And one of the things I found in the files was uh, love letters from uh, a man called Frederick Lawrence Long, who'd been his tutor when he was a teenager and in fact later married him. Uh, who clearly was desperately in love with Mountbatten and I think possibly uh, abused him. One of the problems is that as soon as I started asking for these FBI files, the FBI started destroying them, even after I asked for them. Uh, oh, wow. And the files, uh, even the, the private files that have been kept, have been very heavily weeded. So this uh, Lawrence Long letter was found in a miscellaneous file from 1916 but pretty much all other evidence of that relationship has clearly been taken out. Uh, and that's, I know from talking to people and from accounts um, in, in books, that there's a lot about Mountbatten's private life, which um, is clearly not there in the archives and is either the broad, Broadlands, the family home in Hampshire, or is being destroyed. Mountbatten uh, always asked all his girlfriends to send him the, the love letters. He was always paranoid about them being found and one of the reasons that I was able to quote Jenny Lindsay's letters uh, uh, was because she refused to do that. Uh, so I think many of the women uh, we won't know about because those letters are, are stuck in the archives, to have been destroyed. Uh, and indeed, many of the files on him that the government should have released in this country uh, are still closed, uh, particularly files relating to his assassination in 1979 by the IRA uh, and indeed, to his, um, uh, to many other things, including perhaps his paedophile activities. Uh, I've asked, for example, for the uh, logs of the car numbers going into Clasybawn for the month in August 1977 when these boys were abused, which they've refused to release. Uh, as I said, there's a lot of mystery about his death. He'd always been a target for the IRA. He'd always had plenty of protection. But in 1979, it was a particularly bad time. Erie Neve had just been assassinated. The IRA had said they were going to kill a member of the royal family. He was warned not to go to Ireland, but chose to go. Uh, And for the first time, his boat to Shadow 5, which was moored in the local harbour, was not watched. And as a result, the IRA were able to plant a bomb on board, which they detonated uh, remotely. Um, on the last August bank holiday of, of 1979, blowing him up almost immediately. Together with uh, other members of his family, his grandson and the grandson's friend, uh, and um, Mountbatten's son's son-in-law's mother were all killed. Uh, but the IRA. Uh, what's interesting is that there were six people in the team. Only two of them have, have been were arrested. Only one of them was convicted and he was let out quite quickly under the Good Friday Agreement and still alive. There was a man called Graham Ewell, who was a military policeman, who was deputed to guard him that summer, and he did an intelligence assessment showing that the boat was vulnerable and should be guarded, and also reporting uh, IRA activists uh, in the area. And when he gave that report to his superiors, not only did they ignore it, but they actually told him to uh, basically forget it, and they uh, moved him to Hong Kong, uh, and he claims he was forced to sign a gagging order, which only expired a few years ago. So there are a lot of mysteries about why uh, he was left so unprotected. MacBattin, of course, never really liked too much protection. It, it affected his his freedom of movement, uh, but also, of course, it it curtailed his activities in Ireland uh, with his his paedophile activities. So, but there have been various rumours, uh, Enoch Powell said the CIA were involved, there have been stories of British intelligence, Some um, someone said the KGB supplied the bomb, the Syrians trained the bomber. So, I think there's a lot more to the story than we've, we really know about, even though it's 40 years ago. But the files are closed, so we just don't know what, what really happened.
2: That's incredible. I wonder if they're ever be released.
3: I think it's very unlikely. I mean, I've tried very hard to get them to be released. And, um, uh, I think it's very unlikely. I think a lot of, uh, of, files, like those FBI files, have been destroyed. Um, a lot of material is in the Royal Archives. I know that Mountbatten left, uh, a lot of private papers there, uh, and those certainly are, are closed. There's no, there's not even a, um, a catalogue of what's there. So there's still a lot of, um, secrecy around the lives of the Mountbatten's. Um, Indeed I'm trying at the moment to get access to their diaries and letters which were part of this collection um, which was left to Southampton University which was left in lieu of tax uh, and which uh, from public funds from our taxes um, something several million pounds were spent buying Uh, and then when it got to Southampton they decided to close it uh, without any proper legal authority and so I'm challenging that at the moment to see if we can have access to those diaries and letters. But it's difficult to know what private letters and diaries from the 1920s can have in them that's so sensitive that now, 100 years later, we still can't read them.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
2: So despite all of these rumours um, and obviously Edwina's impidelity and also Dickie's um how powerful were they as a couple post-war?
3: Well, I think they were very important. I mean, he was the last viceroy of India, uh, first governor general of India after that. He was probably among the royal family the only person to have had a, a really distinguished public career separate from his royal duties, uh, ending up as chief of defence staff, which is as high as you can go in the armed services uh they were uh mixing with high society i mean they uh, on their honeymoon they they mixed with Douglas Fairbanks junior and Charlie Chaplin their friends later on included people like Grace Kelly uh, they loved showbiz people um but you know he had the ear of various politicians he was often out, brought in to chair committees uh there's even a big story which I discovered in 1968 where he thought he might actually become the figurehead behind a coup against the the, the against Harold Wilson which has been covered up i mean he saw himself as a as a big player uh she less so and of course he didn't have her restraining influence after 1960 and i think one does get a sense of him being slightly out of control after that um but um you know, they remain major figures. And, and at his funeral, uh, many millions around the world watched it. There were crowds of 50,000 uh, uh, aligning the route. Uh, it made headlines around the world. I certainly remember as a young boy, uh, the news, it's rather sort of similar to when Diana died or Kennedy died. Uh, it was that bigger a story. Um, and if you think his influence on the royal family stretched, really from the time of Queen Victoria to the present day, uh, it's been said by one royal writer that uh, he was probably the most important influence on Prince Charles. Uh, they remained very close throughout um, uh, his life. Uh, Charles gave the funeral rations at his funeral memorial service. So he had a huge impact on the royal family and indeed, you know, on the country as a whole.
2: Sticking with that topic, um, how instrumental was he in the marriage of Princess Elizabeth to his nephew
3: Philip? Well, one of the things about Dicky was he was a great fixer. I mean, he loved to help people, but he could be very interfering. And it's become clear from the, the archives that I've seen, the letters um, in the Royal Archives, that he and George VI basically plotted the courtship of the Queen and Prince Philip. It was Dicky who was determined to, to create this dynasty. Uh, he later tried to get his uh, granddaughter, Amanda, to marry Prince Charles. But he, uh, when the Queen came around Dartmouth in July 1939, it was he who got Prince Philip to show her round. Um, this correspondence between the King and Mountbatten showing them pushing that relationship along. I mean, clearly there was an attraction, particularly on the side of the Queen. Um, bringing them together, they made sure that Philip, who was basically a, um, a sort of Greek-Danish-German prince, uh, had his naturalisation done, that he joined the Navy, that he was prepared... To, to be acceptable to the British public. His sisters were married to Nazi um, uh, officers. Uh, and so there was a, a real sort of preparation. Um, they could see there was an attraction there and they pushed along. And often Philip fought against that and the interference. Uh, and that was to be true throughout his life. But Dickie would, for example, let Philip bring his girlfriends during the war down to, to Broadlands and stay there. He did the same with Charles later. You can see their names in the visitor's book. Uh, and he, he did a lot to, to, to push to, to, to matchmate people because he wanted people to be happy. He, he, he believed in that, those sort of family connections. Remember, he'd come from that generation where people just did marry within, within their, their circle, within their family. Um, and so I think he's a very important influence. And of course, he was determined that when the Queen married Prince Philip, Prince Philip took, uh, the Mountbatten name. Uh, in 1947, he was naturalized, and that that Mountbatten name would carry on. It would be the House of Mountbatten. And when that happened in 1952, when George VI died, uh, everyone was appalled because, of course, it was only a few years since the First World War and they'd created the House of Windsor. And Churchill and various people made a huge stink about it, and the Queen was forced to issue a proclamation saying that no, now that she was Queen, she was the house, still the House of Windsor. But eventually, uh, a compromise was was found, and so they're now known as the House of Mountbatten-Windsor. Uh, so, for example, uh, Meghan and Harry's son Archie is a Mountbatten-Windsor.
2: So, coming back to Edwina, she dies quite young, doesn't she?
3: Yes, she's only in her fifties when she dies. She she died uh, on this tour in Borneo. Uh, probably from hard work. She'd really been pushing herself. She was doing these tours around the world all the time, always on the go. Uh, she'd had some medical problems. Uh, and I think she just, it was exhaustion. Her heart couldn't cope. I mean, she literally just conked out. I mean, there have been various rumours that she took drugs, uh, that she had various sexually transmitted diseases, that her immune system was weak, Um and there may be something there, who, who knows? Uh, again, that's material that has been closed. So we just don't know. We, we, we don't know what the autopsy said when she died. Um, so we can only speculate. Um, but uh, he was absolutely shattered by it. I mean, though they'd had their separate lives, they'd by that stage become very much not just a public team, but had been brought together. There was Their private life was much happier. Um, and so it was tragedy for him when that happened. Um, but who knows? Uh, I, when I go out and give talks, often people pop up in the audience with stories about her. Or, for example, someone popped up the other day who was the daughter of uh, a doctor who's treated her for sex addiction in the 1920s. So there's clearly a lot of material that I didn't find that is really with people and their memories, uh, but hopefully will not be lost when they die, but may eventually emerge.
2: So career-wise, what does Dickey do after India? And what are the Harold Wilson conspiracy theories?
3: Well, when he comes back from from India in 1948, he's determined to to, to, to carry on and become First Sea Lord. He goes to Malta uh, as um, Commander-in-Chief Mediterranean um, and uh, eventually comes back as First Sea Lord. He's there during Suez. He's uh, very opposed to the Suez landings and threatens to resign. He eventually is, say, so becomes Chief of the Defense Staff, uh, and retires in 1965 after a career of over 50 years, uh, in the armed services. Uh, but he remains active in lots of organizations. He's the Governor of the Isle of Wight. Uh, he is, uh, involved with in something like over 100 organizations with charitable and service. Uh, you often see him, uh, on the uh, Trooping of the Color, for example. So he remains extremely active. He gets his, uh papers in order, he supports various biographies that paint him in an attractive light. He makes a, a very ambitious twelve part series about his life filming around the world for two years, Life and Times. Uh, and so he, he's very um active. Uh, the the as I say, the situation in nineteen sixty eight with Harold Wilson is there was a huge concern, particularly among the intelligence services, but also the army and the city that um, the country was going to the dogs. That Wilson really wasn't in control. That he was actually a Soviet agent. He suddenly had Soviet agents around him, uh, and they tried to pull together a, a, a coup against him, which was a, a mixture of politicians, people from the army, people from uh, the um, from industry and the civil service. Uh, and Mountbatten was approached to to basically be the figurehead. Now the public version is that he refused. Said this is rank treachery. But I saw in various correspondence that he was persuaded, he had this huge ego, to go quite a long way down the line until he realised you know, this was, this was treachery and the Queen basically said, you mustn't do this. Um, but uh, he put forward various people for this cabinet, including a great friend of his who was the head of the Hammer horror films, a man called Jimmy Carreras. But various people like Douglas Hume and, and uh, Roy Jenkins were put forward as this government of all the talents. So it's an extraordinary episode, which really hasn't been written about, again, because the participants have destroyed their papers. And it was only by uh, um, triangulating the the, the correspondence between the various people uh, that I was able to see where the gaps were. But, I mean, there are huge gaps in 1968 where they've clearly destroyed their papers or certainly not made them available to any public archive.
2: I really need to say I'm finding Edwina far more appealing than, um, than Dicky,
3: yes and that's right and uh, i know she should have a, a film made of her just her own life um uh you know he could be uh very dif- difficult and um say very vain um you know she had her faults but i think that you know she was this free spirit and you know in her youth that wasn't really allowed um but later on she um you know, was able to, 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 sort of spread her wings a bit. She had a, uh, they both actually had a penchant for, uh, people of color. Um, she had a long affair with, uh, a singer called, uh, Hutch, Leslie Hutchinson. Um, uh, and also a brief affair with the actor Paul Robeson. And of course, Nehru was, was an Indian. Uh, and Dicky was the same. He was attracted to, um, uh, particularly, um, uh, people from Southeast Asia, perhaps as a result of his experience there. So one of the boys he abused um, came from Sri Lanka. So they were sort of, they broke the mould in many ways. Um, and they didn't really care what people thought. The extraordinary thing is that Mountbatten Batten was quite open about his bisexuality. He, he talked about it in the Victory programmes, so that those that bits were cut. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it, was, it was a sort of open secret in their circles. But the, those secrets were kept, really, until until I wrote this book.
2: So you have mentioned to us previously that he was a mentor to Prince Charles. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Yes, there was a very close relationship with Prince Charles going back to the post-war period when Charles used to go out and see Mountbatten in Malta. In fact, there are lots of pictures of uh, Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten with both Prince Charles and Princess Anne. Uh, the relationship, uh, in some ways, went on to the next stage when Charles was serving in the Navy and was based down at Portsmouth. And Mountbatten gave him the use of a room at Broadlands uh, where he could bring girlfriends. They spent a lot of time together chatting. Mountbatten saw his role as a sort of mentor to the prince, treat, uh, teaching him about kingship, giving him the attention that his father, Philip, really didn't give him. And Charles always called him his honorary grandfather. And indeed, Charles was the one who gave the address at both the memorial and the funeral. The relationship uh, also uh, didn't only just cover kingship, but also Charles's private life. And it was Mountbatten who said to Charles, you know, he should sow his wild oats, have lots of relationships with the woman, uh, and then marry a virgin. And that is felt was the advice that uh, Charles followed when he then settled down with Diana to tragic, uh, not very good consequences. So it was indeed a very close relationship. When... Charles heard that his grandfather, sorry, great uncle, had been um, murdered. He was fishing in Iceland. He immediately rang Balmoral uh, and uh, was was deeply, deeply distressed by the whole thing.
2: So we, we have spoken about his death, but there are a couple of conspiracy theories involved in this. So can you tell us more about that?
3: Though the IRA took uh, credit for uh, killing Mountbatten, there are a number of theories that they were not involved. And indeed, the people that were charged were not involved. For example, uh, Patrick McMahon, the only person to go to prison for it, uh, and who was the IRA's chief bomb maker, was picked up before the bomb was actually detonated. Uh, he was picked up in a checkup, a checkpoint. He was found to have jedigmatic on his fingers, traces of paint from the um, boat were, were found on him. So on this forensic evidence, he was convicted, and he served 18 years before being released under the Good Friday Agreement. But he was only one of a team of six. Uh, another chap called Francis McGill was also uh, charged, but was not, there was insufficient evidence to convict him, and he was let off. He died then in, this, in a mysterious Traxor accident, um, supposedly involving the SAS. But over the years, various people have put forward theories the KGB were involved. Uh, you know, Powell thought the CIA were involved. Uh, there was um, Patrick McMahon said that he took the rap uh, for it uh, in order to um, uh, cover uh, another plot from other people. There were t- uh, claims that it wasn't the provision IRA, but it was some um, splinter group that was involved. Uh, so there is a lot of mystery. I mean, even one a person in prison who claimed that uh, Patrick Mahone had said that it was a, a British intelligence operation. Um, it's certainly true that uh, Mountbatten was under a great deal of threat that year. There had just been the assassination of Erie Neve earlier in the year. Uh, the authorities knew there was a, a plan to kill him. Indeed, there were stories in... Uh, Mullock Moore that people would not take Mountbatten out on his boat because they were worried they'd heard stories about a bomb on the boat. Uh, uh, and it is odd that though there had been an attempt to put a bomb on the boat the previous year and it had always been under some sort of surveillance, that in 1979 there was no surveillance on the boat whatsoever and it was an easy target. Uh, there was also a, a character I talked to called Graham Ewell, who was a military policeman who was tasked in the summer of 1979 to do an intelligence audit or security audit, on batten And he raised the question of the boat not being guarded. He said that there were IRA activists in Mullock Moor, uh, uh, but nothing was done with with this. And in fact, he was then taken off duties and posted to Hong Kong and told never to talk about it. So it looks like there was either a cock-up um, uh, or some sort of conspiracy to withdraw the sort of security he'd been used to. The fact is the guarder who were protecting him were not trained properly they didn't go on the boat they were watching from the clifftop when he was killed uh, and so there are a lot of mysteries and the problem is those mysteries won't be cleared up until the files are opened and the files still 40 years later are closed
2: i wonder how longer they're going to stay they're going to stay closed because there's documents that i'm still waiting for that they closed again um, and I will be in my late seventies when they apparently are reopened. So um, it's one of those things where being a historian.
3: <laughs> exactly. No, it's very frustrating. I mean, I, you know, I'm a great believer that you know all documents should be open, even with data protection uh, provisions. Um, you know, within fifty years uh, of the event, because um, how can we tell the story of our history if we haven't got the documents to to, to look at?
2: Exactly. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, I am actually going out and buying your book right now because I want to read more about Edwina. I've, you've made me fall in love with her very much. Oh, so great. um well, And I, need, I nice. need to know more about her, <laughs> basically.
3: Well, she is a great person. I'd love to do more about, you know, do more on her. I think one of the problems is because she's only, she dies, you know, three quarters of the way through the book uh, and there's less material on her, a lot of her, her papers are still closed. You know, one has to do it from people's memories. And, of course, she died, you know, 60 years ago. So there are not many people alive who who remember her. Um, But she is a remarkable figure. And so I'm I'm sure you'll enjoy uh, discovering more about her.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks very much for asking me.
1: Join us on Monday when Linda Porter will be with us to talk all about Charles II's mistresses. We're not going to be talking about him, really, uh, just the women themselves, who they were, where they came from. So don't miss that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.